You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, if you have Bibles, uh, 1 John chapter 2 is where uh, we're going to be at this morning. Uh, We're continuing our series in 1 John and page 1021, if you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles. Uh, That's where you can find the start of today's text. We'll pretty quickly flip over to the next page. But as we continue uh, in 1 John this morning, uh, in today's text, John shifts his tone a little bit. He's been doing a lot of exhortation. He's been calling people to things, uh, offering them commandments to follow. He's been encouraging uh, his readers, these Christians in the first century. Today, he switches from those things to a warning. Up to this point in the letter, he's been alluding to this group of opponents who have been drawing Christians away from the church, who've been drawing people away from following Jesus. In our passage today, though, he stops alluding and he goes after them outright. But as we're going to hear, as much as this passage is a warning, it is also assurance. In a world that, as Anthony was leading us this morning in liturgy, in a world that is filled with lies about God, in a world that is filled with opposition to God, John is writing so that you may know truth. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming... So now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you, verse 20, have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we ask now that you would guide us by your word and your spirit, that in your light, we may see light, that in your will, we might discover peace, and that in your truth, we might find freedom. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our God, we pray. Amen. As he seeks to assure his readers that they know the truth, John highlights three different things in this text. The danger, the doctrine, and the defenses. The danger, the doctrine, and the defenses. And we'll spend a little bit of time looking at each of those things this morning. So first, let's talk about the danger. 
Uh, John, as we mentioned, shifts his tone here to a warning. And that's because Christians face real danger. Verse 18, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Uh, Let's define two key terms in that first verse. The last hour and Antichrist. The last hour, which is sometimes referred to in the Bible as the last days, is the period of time between Jesus ascending back to heaven after his resurrection, ascending back to the right hand of the Father, and the time that he comes again. And so John here is not predicting how quickly Jesus will return, as much as he is saying his return can happen now at any time. After Jesus ascended back to heaven, after he sent the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, there's no additional revelation from God that we are waiting for. Uh, The next milestone event in God's redemptive history is the return of Christ. So Jesus can now come at any time. In that sense, it is the last hour. And this is a really important part of John's warning because over the centuries, the most common way that other groups, cults, religions have deceived people, have drawn them away from Jesus, is by claiming a new authoritative revelation from God. Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, there are others, all claim that their founder or founders had a new revelation from God. And it wasn't that all the stuff that happened before a lot of the stuff even that overlaps with the Old Testament in our Bible, it's not that all that stuff was wrong, but it was missing something. There was some additional essential truth that had to be revealed later. That's what's happening among John's readers in the first century. They're claiming additional special knowledge, special revelation from God. And John, as we heard, pulls no punches. He calls them antichrists. What does that mean? Well, in Scripture, Antichrist is both a person and a principle. As John says here, you have heard that Antichrist, singular, is coming. That's a reference to a person. And if we were to read through all of Scripture, starting in the Old Testament book of Daniel, and then picked up by the Apostle Paul and his writings, even John himself, as he writes the book of Revelation, this refers to one particular, particular person who opposes God and his people. Uh, an especially powerful agent of Satan. One author refers to the Antichrist as Satan's Superman. One really powerful agent of Satan. But Antichrist is also a principle that is embodied not just by one person, but by many people. Uh, Antichrist, plural, are people who oppose God, are people who do Satan's bidding. And John says here, in these last days, in this last hour, many Antichrists, have come. False teachers, in other words, who turn people away from the truth. And this is a real danger for Christians, not just in the first century. We sometimes think, C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery. We sometimes think that we're just smarter than people in the first century. They were way too superstitious. So this is something that maybe they would fall into, but not us. But this is a real danger for us today. Right now, there are smart, gifted people with charismatic personalities and really persuasive words who oppose Jesus. And it's deceptive. It's not always immediately obvious. Like if someone were to say to you, hey, you know what, next week, instead of coming to liberty and worshiping Jesus, what if we went somewhere else and worship Satan? 
you would maybe be like, you know, I didn't go to Bible college, but that sounds wrong. That sounds maybe like we shouldn't do that, right? Rarely is it that obvious. Rarely is that the actual danger. Instead, an author, scholar named Mark Knoll put it in his book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, quote, it's entirely possible for someone to appear to be honoring the scriptures, yet interpreting the scriptures in ways that fundamentally contradict the deeper, broader, and historically well-established meanings of the Bible itself. And in John's situation, like in ours many times, these antichrists often emerge within the church itself, not from outside of it. And the greatest dangers to Christians, at least the most deceptive dangers, come not from without, but from within. Now, eventually, as John writes, these antichrists left the church. And he says there in verse 19, they went out from us because they were not of us. In other words, they didn't just leave the church. They left Christ. They left Jesus. But that means, right, that means at one point they were part of a church. At one point they were among Christians. And in some cases, this opposition to Jesus and the subtleties of it took a long time to emerge. Have you, uh, have you experienced this in your own life? My bet is, is, is that if you've been a Christian for more than a few years, you know this to be true experientially. And that people that you once looked up to as mentors, as leaders in the faith, maybe even people that led you to faith in Jesus, people who you, who you never imagined would ever walk away from following Christ, but currently in their life, that's, that's where they are. They've walked away from Jesus, possibly even leading other people away with them. For me, one of the examples that always comes to mind is a, a leader of the campus ministry that I was involved in, one of them in, in college. Uh, and this was a, a man who was incredibly intentional and effective in discipleship. Uh, he was really instrumental in my life, among others, as I was doing some leadership development and growing a lot in my faith in those years. He really called me to, as I thought about leadership, what it meant to be a servant leader, what it meant to, to be humble and to pour yourself out for the good of other people. Uh, a few years after we graduated, and I don't know the whole story of it, but his marriage fell apart. Uh, and, and in the process of that, he, he walked away from following Jesus. And to my knowledge, that's where he remains today. It, it messes with our hearts and it messes with our heads when that happens. When someone instrumental in your life, someone that you followed, walks away. And it is incredibly tragic and it creates all kinds of complexity and doubt and struggle for us when that happens. What we also need, though, to see this morning is that as tragic as it is, it's not a new phenomenon. It's tragically common. And because it's not new, because this is a danger that every generation of Christians face, you have to resolve right now, in the clarity of your thinking right now this morning, resolve to always follow truth and not a teacher. Resolve in your mind, in your heart right now, to always follow truth and not one particular tribe. We each have specific teachers, specific tribes that we appreciate. We have people whose books we read and podcasts we listen to. We have churches that we attend. We have ministries that we support. And by and large, so much of that is good. Maybe more than any other time in human history, there are incredible resources available to us. And there are a lot of helpful teachers out there. 
The question is, how much power have you given those teachers? If today they were to tell you that you've been missing something your whole life, there's a special knowledge, a secret that you haven't known, but now you're finally ready for it. Would you believe them? Would you stop to ask if that were true? Or simply because it was that person who said it, would you take them at their word? If you're a member of of this church, as a number of you are, then the elders and myself are among those who teach you. Uh, You listen to us. You have at least some measure of trust that the things that we say, both from the pulpit and in conversations with you, are true. And I want you to hear this morning, that is a responsibility that I and the other elders here take incredibly seriously. It's a responsibility and it's a privilege. And I hope that you never have a reason to question that the things that we say to you are true. And yet, I want to say to you this morning, always follow truth more than a teacher, including this one. Always follow truth more than any particular tribe. Always commit yourself more to truth than to the way one particular person or one particular group teaches it. I want you to consider this week and talk about this in your Bible study groups Who have I given this kind of influence to? What human teachers do I trust? And more importantly, why do I trust them? How do I know that what they are teaching me really is truth? This is exactly where John then goes next in this passage. He gives us a doctrinal test to distinguish distinguish truth from error. And so second, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the doctrine. Up to this point in his letter, John has been addressing that uh, claims that these opponents have been making, but the claims he's addressed have been uh, claims about their life and about their experience. So these opponents claim to have fellowship with God. Uh, they claim to not have committed sins. They claim to be in the light. In this passage, John, for the first time, addresses some of their doctrine. Not their lives or experience so much, but some of their specific beliefs. Why does he do that? Because it's, it's possible for false teachers to live morally exemplary lives. False teachers can be incredible people, incredible men and women, who in some ways live more upstanding lives than you or I do. That's part of what's dangerous and deceptive about this. See, sometimes we know antichrists. Sometimes we know false teachers by what we can observe in their lives. They live in ways that overtly contradict the design or the commandments of God. Maybe one example of this would be some of the the televangelists that you see in America, at least. uh, Televangelists that, that, that propagate what's called the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. And you observe their life and you think, well, I think this person's goal is to get a bigger house, a private plane, more cars, and more money. And how does that ever How does that line up with Jesus' call for leaders in his church to be servant leaders and humble and not not pursuing great gain? Sometimes we look at the external, we observe something's off there and what this person is teaching might be wrong. But not always. Sometimes false teachers keep the rules well. Sometimes all the visible external stuff is, is in place. And yet, as John puts it here in verse 22, they are liars. They're liars. They believe and proclaim lies about Jesus. See, as Christians, we, we are concerned about hypocrisy. We never want to be people who believe 
and say one thing while living lives that contradict that. But I would invite you to see this morning, the inverse of that is also true. We don't want to be people who live really good lives while believing or perpetuating lies. Christians are always concerned about both hypocrisy and heresy. We are always fighting against both hypocrisy and heresy. And so having already written about their hypocrisy, in this text, John proceeds to fight heresy. He combats lies about God. What lie specifically? Verse 22, a denial that Jesus is the Christ. Now that, on the one hand, would include denying that Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah. Uh, Denying that Jesus is the savior of God's people that they had been anticipating for centuries. And so if you reject Jesus as the Messiah, as for example, Judaism does, you are, at the end of the day, lying about God. You are lying about Jesus. But John, in this text, almost certainly means more than that. Because the, the Antichrist that he's referring to in this passage were once part of the church. So he's not specifically referring here to Jews who rejected Jesus outright. The people he's referring to here, at one point or another, did embrace that Jesus was the Messiah. So what would their denial entail? The overwhelming evidence says it was a denial of some aspect of Jesus' incarnation. That it was a denial of either Jesus' full divinity or Jesus' full humanity or maybe both. And we know from church history that most of the major heresies, most of the major lies that have been told about God over the years were about that. Some groups played up the divinity of Jesus He said, yep, he's fully God, but he's not fully man. He just had the appearance of a human being. Other groups played up the humanity of Jesus. He said, yep, he's fully human, but he's not fully God. He just had a special empowerment from God. The most dangerous denials, men and women, are not flat-out rejections. They're redefinitions. The most dangerous denials are not flat-out rejections. They are redefinitions. Charles Spurgeon once said, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. And as Christians, we have to get it right about Jesus. Almost right about Jesus is wrong. Almost right about Jesus is a lie. For nearly 2,000 years now, almost right about Jesus has been the tool of Antichrist to draw people away from following Jesus. And so whether it's by flat-out rejection or whether it's by redefinition, John says here, no one who denies the Son has the Father. If God the Father is the one who sent the Son, if God the Father is the one who bears witness about the Son, then if you deny the Son, you also deny the Father. It's only, as John says, if we confess the Son, if we believe in the fullness of who Jesus is and what he's revealed about himself, then we have the Father also. Herman Bavink, Dutch theologian, said it better than I can, which is kind of always the case for Herman Bavink. He's got a lot of great stuff out there. But he says this, Christ is Christianity itself. He stands not outside of it, but in its center. And without his name, person, and work, there is no Christianity left. In a word, Bavink says, Christ does not point the way to salvation. He is the way itself. He is the way itself. 
And so let this be a call to every single one of us in the room this morning. Confess the Son. Confess the Son. Believe that Jesus Christ is fully God. Believe that he is fully man. Believe that he is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Believe that no one comes to the Father except through him. If you're someone who's never believed that before, we would call you and we would do this every time we gather to confess the Son, to consider the claims of Jesus as audacious as they are, and to put your faith and your hope and your trust in Jesus as the only way to the Father. For those of you who do confess that, because we cannot confess with our mouths what we do not know with our minds, let this also be a call to learn Christology, to learn the doctrine of Christ. If you are going to be someone who is more committed to following truth than any particular teacher or tribe, if you're going to be someone who's able to discern right from almost right, you have to know truth. And most importantly, you have to know the truth about Jesus. In 2018, Lifeway and Ligonier Ministries partnered up to do a research project on the state of theology. In that survey, 51% of evangelical Christians... So these would be men and women who said, yep, I believe these certain things about Jesus. Uh, that's me. 51% of people that responded, they were evangelical Christians, agreed with this statement. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Half. Half of evangelical Christians said, yes, that's, that's true. Now, both Judaism and Islam reject that Jesus is the Son of God. They don't confess the Son. And yet, 51% of evangelical Christians say, no, that's right. God accepts the worship of of all of those people. Same survey, 78% of evangelical Christians agreed with this statement. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. This one's a little more confusing, but that is actually a heresy that in the fourth century became known as Arianism. Jesus was not created. He's not a created being. He was, as John writes in his gospel, John chapter 1, he was with God in the beginning. And listen, I understand surveys put people on the spot. That second question in particular could be confusing to some people because there are passages in the Bible talk about Jesus being the firstborn from among the dead and the firstborn among creation. But at the end of the day, that is a rejection of Jesus' full divinity. And it wasn't just a few people, 78, four out of five, four out of five people who said, yes, I'm a Christian, said, yep, that sounds right. Jesus was created. That is, at least in my opinion, a doctrinal crisis. And, and far from being just an intellectual pursuit, like let's learn some stuff so we're smart and can talk about this at parties. It's this doctrine that distinguishes truth from error. It's this doctrine that protects us from danger. It's this doctrine which will enable you to become someone who follows truth more than any given teacher or tribe. So let us confess the Son and let us know what we are confessing. Become a student of Scripture. Become a student of truth and especially a student of the truth of Jesus. Now, thankfully, we are not left to ourselves in this. And in our desire and our pursuit to know truth and to live by truth, we have been given defenses. So third and finally, let's talk about the defenses. John highlights two incredible defenses that we have in this text. And both of them are from God. One comes through the ministry of John and the other apostles. The other comes directly from Jesus himself. 
The first one, verse 24, is the message that we have heard from the beginning. The message we have heard from the beginning. So many lies about Jesus involve this idea of special knowledge. There's something extra that you haven't heard yet. There's a secret knowledge that once you know it, changes everything. And John is saying here, no, no, Christians, I'm not writing to you because you missed something. I'm not writing to you because you don't know the truth. I'm writing to you because you do. The message that you have heard from the beginning, that's truth. The gospel, the good news of our salvation through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, it is not simply the 101 of Christianity. It is everything. We are not meant to to learn about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and then be invited to move on to something else. And if people say, hey, I'm glad you got those fundamental things down, now move on to this other different thing, you should be concerned. You should not listen to them. As Protestant Christians in the West, in the 21st century, many of us are attracted to novelty. I think it's a danger we're particularly inclined to. We get bored of old stuff. We get concerned that routines and rituals are empty or become meaningless. And so I think we are uniquely prone to chase new and shiny things, new experiences, new resources. And we're prone in that to hitch our wagon to people who tell us they found this new incredible thing. They found this silver bullet. Some years back, uh, fairly soon after this individual arrived in our church, Uh, He told me about his teaching gifts and his desire to teach in different venues here in our church. Uh, And the way that he said it in in one of these conversations was, hey, no one teaches the Bible like I do. No one teaches the Bible like I do. And I replied, hey, this is probably not the response you're hoping for, but I don't hear that as an asset. Uh, I'm actually a lot more concerned now with you and the things that you would teach here because you said no one teaches the Bible like you. Like in my ordination exam to become a pastor, uh, in my assessment with the Liberty Communion when I was becoming a a church planter with them, if I had said, hey, no one preaches like me, that would have been the end of the road. Uh, Rightfully so. Rightfully so. Not only is it arrogant, it's not even the right target to aim for. It's not the right target to aim for. If someone invites you to listen to a teacher, to go to a church, whatever it is, because they're saying things no one's heard before, you should be concerned. You should be concerned. Preaching and teaching should not be boring. God forbid we take something as amazing as the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus, and make it dull. But if novelty is your asset, then your asset is actually a major liability. I praise God for parents and pastors, and mentors in my life, that they were more concerned about being faithful than about being flashy. I praise God that they were more concerned about fidelity than novelty. Right? You, can, you can keep the shiny stuff. You can keep the flashy stuff. Here's to the faithful, lifelong, quote-unquote, boring ones who teach us to press on in the message we have heard from the beginning. Amen? Amen. The apostles received a message from Jesus and faithfully delivered it to us. And as they spread this gospel around the world, what they taught was truth. What they delivered and what we received, we are to then go on believing. It's one of the strongest defenses we have against the danger of antichrists and the lies they propagate. That's one of the defenses. The second defense 
This one comes directly to us from God the Father and God the Son, is the anointing that we have received. The anointing we've received. John sprinkles this idea throughout this passage. Verse 20 says, you have been anointed by the Holy One. Verse 27, he says, the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And then later in verse 27, his anointing teaches you about everything. John here is referring to the anointing by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Before Jesus went to the cross, he prayed for his disciples. He promised that when he left and ascended back to heaven, he would send the Holy Spirit. And twice in that upper room, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of what? Truth. The spirit of truth. John 16, 13, Jesus said, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. When we put our faith in Jesus and his finished work, we receive the Holy Spirit. That is the anointing that you have received that John's writing about in this text. Even the youngest Christian, even the most baby Christian, person that just became a Christian yesterday, has this anointing. Every Christian has the ability to know the truth. Every Christian has the resource which will guide them to discern right from wrong, truth from error. John here goes on to write in verse 27, you have no need for anyone to teach you. Now, the irony in that statement, of course, is that he has to teach them that. He he has to teach them that they don't need teachers. So John is not saying, ignore all human teachers. You know what? Just hide out in your room with your Bible and the Holy Spirit. See what you come up with. Uh, That's maybe how in the West, you know, our hyper-individualistic ears could hear a text like this and say, okay, it's just me and Jesus. I'm going to go off with my room and a Bible and the Spirit and see what comes up. A lot of new heresies have been invented that exact way. That's a good way to, to create your own lies about God. Teachers are good. Teachers are honored throughout the scriptures. We need people to teach us our whole life. What John is saying here is don't go chasing down every new teaching for fear that you've missed something. Every time someone says, hey, I've got this amazing new thing no one's heard before. No one teaches the Bible like me. You don't have to go running after it. You don't have to doubt that you have something lacking in what you've already heard. If you have received the message of Jesus and you've believed, then you have the Holy Spirit. You are not missing some kind of secret special knowledge. You have the message. You have the Spirit. Praise God, you know the truth. You know the truth. Men and women, you face real danger in this life. You will encounter people, you no doubt have encountered people who lie about Jesus, who try to deceive you. It will not always be obvious. It will not always be apparent from the start. And so in light of John's words this morning, be careful, be cautious about your enemy, but at the very same time, be confident in your savior. In this last hour, many antichrists have come, but you, verse 20, have been anointed with the Holy One. But you, verse 20, have knowledge. But you, verse 21, know the truth. But you, verse 24, will abide in the Son and in the Father. But you, verse 25, have received the promise of eternal life. And, verse 26, his anointing abides in you. And, verse 27, his anointing teaches you about everything. And, verse 27, his anointing is no lie, but is true. Just as 
antichrists eventually go out from the church. Genuine Christians remain. Genuine Christians persevere to the end. Genuine Christians abide forever. So may you be aware of the danger. May you learn the doctrine and especially the doctrine of Christ. May you avail yourself of the incredible defenses you have of the message you have heard from the beginning and the spirit of God. Because Jesus died and rose again, may you live with confidence today and every day that you know the truth. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we praise you that you have made divine truth real to us in Jesus Christ. That you have made yourself knowable and known in him. We praise you this morning that we can know the truth from the lie because you have sent your spirit into our hearts, that we can abide with you now and forever. And we ask this morning that you would root our feet deeply, that you would anchor us in the truth. Thank you for this, this table that we're about to come to and that Jesus on that very night that he said he would sp- send the spirit of truth also gave us this remembrance, this rehearsal of the gospel. As we come this morning, may we take great comfort and joy. May we have great confidence that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. May we come to be strengthened in him again today. We pray that all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.